welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. Did you notice how I didn't say the number this time around? I did, yes. <laughs> I feel like we're getting too big for uh, saying the numbers every time now. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> no, I think I just forgot what number we were on. <laughs> oh, no worries. I mean, we're also... Right now, we're you know spending some time cranking out the special episodes and everything too, because you know we all have a little extra time on our hands during this um, these curious days <laughs> of Corona lockdown. <laughs> I say we get to um, spend some more time looking at each other and recording these podcasts for people. Hopefully, give them something to listen to whilst they're sat at home twiddling their thumbs, doing nothing. It, yeah, I, I, I hope, if nothing else, that we can bring a little, little Viking light into your worlds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And on that note, I think we should mention that for this episode, we're not going to have any sponsors on it. We're not going to have any adverts. And instead, what myself and Mateus are going to ask the listeners to do is that if you, if you're enjoying it, if you like what we do. Obviously, we don't make any money from this, but we thought it would be really nice if people just either donated to a cause that you liked or just took an extra moment to help somebody out in these trying times. And maybe it was just, you know, checking on an elderly neighbor or somebody who doesn't have as much as you do. And just basically just be more human and just try and look after each other. Yeah. Please go out and uh, be a little more human when you do go out. Um of course, stay inside most of the time, but um, I, I would really like to uh, appeal to everybody to um, to actually donate a little money to uh, whatever uh, types of um, like relief programs and charities that are available out there that uh, directly help uh, fight this uh, you know, crisis that so many countries are in at this point. And I also uh, wanted to give a uh, shout out to um, two artists who are uh, coming together. So this is uh, the Bella dot lit and um, Bertia uh, Marubio, uh, it, both Italian artists who are working on a, um, a art piece that they say they will uh, uh, um, give to anyone who. Uh, donates uh, to an organization, a uh, medical facility, a medical charity, um, working to fight the coronavirus. Um, so let me just read what they're uh, writing on their page. They're saying, we're working on a unique piece of art inspired by Norse mythology. We're collaborating at a distance. Uh, Bertia uh, is from Veneto and... Um, uh, the Bella is from uh, Emilia Romagna, and they're working to create this digital art. Uh, they say, we will deliver the artwork uh, file with license to use for tattoos, prints, um, or whatever you see fit uh, for your personal use. And the only condition is that you show us proof of donation to a medical facility or medical charity. It can be in Italy or in your area. Uh, we're all in this together. So... Um, yeah, go, go check out their, uh, Instagram profiles and, uh, and see more about this, uh, if you're interested and hopefully 
you will uh, find it in your heart to donate and help your communities. Uh, and their Instagram profiles are Bertia, B-E-R-T-I-A underscore uh, Marupio, M-A-R-U-B-I-O. And um, the other one is TheBella.Lit. So uh, T-H-E-B-E-L-L-A dot L-I-T. Go check them out. Go follow them. And... Go see the amazing artwork that they do. It's beautiful seeing people come together at this moment. I mean, there's obviously a lot of horrible things going on. You, there's there's very sad stories of elderly not being able to buy the you know sort of the groceries they need and the necessities, and also medical workers because they're working such long hours, they're also missing out on the opportunity to buy sort of necessities and and items they need. So, alongside that, it is nice to see these moments of of goodness from people just trying to pick people up and, and like you say we're going to get through this together i know i saw yesterday that liam gallagher posted that he wanted um oasis to finally get back together for one one gig to donate all the money to charity which i thought would be pretty pretty insane i mean i'm not the biggest oasis fan but i think he probably would be the largest comeback of any kind of music band in history so i imagine they'd raise a fair old pharaoh penny yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I would have never expected that, actually, with all the drama that went down with those guys. <laughs> well, that's it, exactly. I mean, it shows that this, this sometimes it takes events like this to bring people together. I know you've got you've got brothers there that have been feuding for, for decades and, and have refused to speak to each other, and something like this makes them think, you know, maybe there's more to, more to life than arguing with your, your sibling and and maybe we should just get back together and do something good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really cool. And no, I mean, this this stuff is getting really serious, especially in places like Italy and Spain. Uh, we're seeing we're seeing a huge impact on society, and I just hope that everybody stays safe and and you know uh, really do make an effort to care for uh, your community and the people around you. Yeah, I saw this morning. That I think Italy has just overtaken. China is the um, the leader in the in the death toll, unfortunately, which is which is insane, really. Um, obviously, Italy start started with it quite a while after it, it first first began in China. So for them to have have so many deaths so fast, it's quite it's quite alarming. Yeah, and I mean, I had a I had a quick look yesterday the the countries that are affected, and it seems almost that there's nobody out there that hasn't been affected by this in, in some way. Um, just to have like a quick look at some of the countries that are on the list that have some cases, you've got places like Nicaragua, the Isle of Man, the Vatican City, Gambia, Fiji, El Salvador, Djibouti, Cape, uh, Cape Verde, um, Angola, Zambia, St. Lucia. So, you know, these are really remote places that have still, ha you know, been affected by it. It's insane how fast... This has spread into the it's seemingly like the four corners of the earth, and it's, there is no place that seems to be untouched by it at the moment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Every every place uh, at this point. Um, yeah, I, last thing I heard from from Greenland is that they've gone on lockdown too. You know, uh, <laughs> the remote Arctic. <laughs> I think Greenland have like two cases, but that's obviously the two that they know about. 
and obviously there's probably people they don't know about that have got it and it just seems to be spreading like wildfire and it's not and people need to to obviously take a moment to think that even if they are not at risk themselves it, it's the ability to pass it on to somebody who is at risk and it's it's those people that you need to be thinking of and making sure you try not to give it to them exactly and uh, you know also a reminder if if you do think oh i'm not at risk let me just go out and do my thing and all that stuff just just keep in mind that not everybody knows what underlying conditions they have themselves that you know you could for instance have some respiratory illness that you weren't uh, aware of or just weaker uh, respiratory tracts and that's what this virus does right it infects the respiratory tracts and makes it hard for you to breathe so um i just saw a, a very um unfortunate uh, case in 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 la a, a person at the age of 34 with underlying uh, bronchitis issues um has now died right so consider that you could be pretty young you could feel healthy and all that stuff and you could be fine but Still, you don't know if this uh, can actually affect your uh, breathe, capacity to breathe. So consider that. That's a that's a brilliant point. And to be honest, I, I've not mentioned this to anybody yet. But on a personal level, that's something that that's worried me. And um, from the fact that because I work with Horn and because I've done so much sanding with it, and it's not so bad now because we've got a really good set up to get you know really good dust extraction but the first couple of years doing it you know i, I was wearing a mask but sometimes where you'd forget to put it on or you know the masks are 100 percent so obviously i've got to keep up appearances having a nice big beard so they you know they're not 100 percent tight and and you don't think about it you just so i worry you know how good my lungs are going to be after four years of, of breathing in horn dust and you know you can you can make a joke about it but a little part of me does worry if I did catch it, whether that would play a, play a part in it. Yeah, yeah, no, and and asthma is another thing that can can really be be difficult with this. And uh, no, I I agree completely. I I I've smoked on and off most of my life. You know, I had like you know, <laughs> it's weird. Uh, you know, smoking for five years and quitting for seven years and then getting back into it. Um, I finally quit again. <laughs> but you know that impacts your lungs of course i've also worked with um like horns and bones and uh wood um using dremel tools and uh, throughout my life so um so, so yeah that that's also something that can impact your lungs and city dwellers anybody anybody anywhere in the world living in large city areas don't forget the fact that you know all the pollution the car emissions all that stuff has a huge impact on your lungs as well. So this is not to be to get all preachy about the apocalypse, but just keep it in mind that you actually can't always know if there is some other uh, uh, thing uh, impacting you when uh, you get this kind of infection. Yeah, and I mean, we have started off on quite a quite a sad, downbeat nose um, note. Sorry, but. It's quite fitting for the for the episode itself. So you know, we we seem to be facing. It, I mean, it's not a total apocalypse, but at moments I think it can feel like that when you look outside and there's there's nobody on the streets and you see in places like 
I saw yesterday on the news that they were building a temporary mortuary in the middle of London because obviously they must be expecting a, a peak in deaths. So it, it can feel quite apocalyptic. So that's what the this bonus episode is going to be about. We're going to be looking at the, the Norse apocalypse, which is Ragnarok. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of it. Ah, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. It's it's an English word too nowadays. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, do you want to start out quickly by giving an outline of what Ragnarok is, um, kind of where we learn about it, and then we'll go from there into some of the reasons why we think that the Norse believed in Ragnarok and where the the whole sort of destruction tale came from. Yes. Okay. So first of all, the 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 yeah. This uh, this episode is it's kind of about the Nordic apocalypse, but there is also a silver lining. So don't worry, don't get too depressed al- already. Uh, stay with us, and and uh, good things uh, will come to you. Um, <laughs> okay, so the story about Ragnarok is probably the oldest um, sort of like story that we can at least pinpoint in history. When when does it um, emerge? It looks like. Uh, it comes about in the last half of the 900s. That's it. at least the, the way that the story that it is uh, composed and we have available in, in writing from the 13th century, that's, that's what it looks like, that it appears around this time. And um, we can see that because uh, a, a couple of skulls, um, these court poets, um, Norwegian court poets, they, they seem to be referring to stanzas in the poem Verlusbau. And Verlusbau is the primary source to the story of Ragnarok. So it looks like Verlusbau is composed, you know, maybe in the 980s, 90s, who knows, by an unknown composer. But these named uh, skaldic po- poets, on the other hand, they start using material from it uh, in that uh, century that comes that comes after, so in the thousands. So that's that's like the beginning. The poem Verlospal means the prophecy of the seeress, uh, a vulva is a r- ritual authority, a religious figure in in the Viking Age. Um, we we know her from, for instance, the story in um, Eric the Red Saga. Um, that takes place in Greenland, where there's a famine, and this vulva is invited to come and um, perform this seder ritual, which is some kind of divination ritual. The, the, the vulva is supposed to like, look into the other world or travel into the other world in some kind of shamanic trance or or whatever. It's, it's a little... It's not 100% uh, clear how this happens, but nonetheless, uh, that's that's what this ritual seems to be about. And in the poem Verlospa, we have a similar situation. This Verva uh, is, is looking into the past and seems to be also looking into the future. She describes the creation of the world um, and what happens with the gods. What are they... You know, First, they build civilization, and then there's the first war of the world. And the primary parts of this poem are about Ragnarok. That's, of course, interesting in and of itself, because we have, uh, you know, in total, we have 66 stanzas, I think it is. 
and two thirds of them are about Ragnarok, <laughs> and then the rest is like there's a little um, little bit of information about the, the the creation of a world and and all that stuff. Um, the poem itself is can be a little obscure um, to read. It's not always quite clear what's happening, what they're talking about. Um, but of, of course, we have our good friend Snorri Sturluson from uh, the beginning of the 13th century, the Icelandic chieftain who is responsible for having uh, written down so much material on Nordic mythology. And he did that presumably because he wanted us to be able to understand Skaldic poetry uh, in the future. Um, and um, Snorri writes uh, the book Etta, and it has four chapters. The first chapter is a prologue that explains why people believed in all these different gods and weren't just Christian from the beginning. Because mind you, from Sonoristulison's perspective, the world was created as Christian. And then people forgot about God, and that's how they became pagans. Um, so, so that's part of what he's trying to explain in all of this. And that goes throughout the book. The next uh, chapter is called uh, Gilvaginning, so the delusion of Gilvi. Um, we have the Swedish king who has heard about the Aesir, the, the Nordic gods, basically migrating from Asia, the Aesir migrating from Asia. <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> this is, this is a, a deliberate uh, sort of quote-unquote etymology that, that Snorri uses here. Um, they sound alike. <laughs> so uh, that's where these gods must come from. And um, they have migrated to Scandinavia, and Gilvi is like interested in hearing about these these uh, these people because they they seem rich and they seem capable of a lot of magical things. And so he goes to their dwelling, what whatever that place is, if it's like Valhut or Ausgader, the home of the gods. We don't really know, but he goes there, and and you can he can apparently like go there on foot, right? He, he just travels there. And then he um, um, enters this room where these three uh, Aesir are sitting, uh, Haur, Japnhaur, and Thridi. Uh, so three figures that have Odin names. And then he starts asking them questions. And he's like, how about this? Who created the world? What was that thing? What a la la la. And uh, it all goes pretty well for a while. But the end of this chapter is about Ragnarok. And what is important to understand about this chapter is that what we're dealing with here is a contest of knowledge. And there is a mechanism uh, that is set off as soon as uh, Gilvi shows up in this hall and starts asking questions. The, if you don't have answers to the questions, you lose. That's that's the thing here, and so when 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 Gilvi is asking all these questions, these Aesir have to come up with answers, and this is where it, uh, an important thing happens towards the end of this chapter. Gilvi asks if Thor has ever failed, and this is important, right? 
because why would he ask that? Well, <laughs> it's probably because we're dealing with a Christian author in the 13th century who is trying to demonstrate exactly how this otherwise incredibly popular pagan god failed. And so the next thing is that they're telling stories about how Thor uh, goes to Utgaraloki and where he's tricked. Um, the whole story about Utgaraloki is that, uh, and this is one of the most popular stories about Thor nowadays. Right? I think most people know the story about how he goes to giant land and he has to like lift that cat that is actually the Midgard serpent. He has to drink Vitis Hornis, the Punisher horn. Um, there's, by the way, a, a product line for you right there, Daniel. <laughs> He's in the juice, yeah. Don't, don't you know that I've thought about that before? Get like some of those big Texan cattle horns and call them Vitis Hornis. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely something there. Right? <laughs> but the whole point of, of these stories, uh, or, or these trials that he undergoes there, and Loki also undergoes, and Dialvi for that matter, is that they're supposed to fail. And because we're dealing with a, uh, a, a an otherworldly figure, like, they're actually traveling to some kind of, like, out of space territory here. Because in the beginning of the story, it says, um, Thor and Loki traveled across Midgather, then they came to Jotunheimr, and then they traveled across the deep sea and ended up in Utgather. So this is like outside of the world, basically. Um, it's, it's like a space odyssey of Thor. <laughs> and that is really important because out there, you're taught things about how the world functions. This this movement that he does, um, this journey, is uh, very similar to what we know of um, the vision quests, and this is the vision quests are it's very specific Christian literature that begins probably already with Saint Paul. So back in the like the first generation after Jesus, pretty much, I think that's when Saint Paul was around. Um, or maybe second generation. Um, these holy men, Christian uh, uh, seers, like St. Paul, would experience journeys to the other world, where they go beyond our world into this uh, in-between realm. And we all know this story from European literature in in context of Dante, Right. That, that's like the, the divine comedy is exactly that. The journey through heaven and hell. That's what these people experienced in different ways, according to this literature. And Thor is experiencing exactly this, where he is basically taught by some kind of powerful magician giant um, how the world works. And uh, this seems to be a story that has been adapted by from the uh, Arthurian legend of Sir Govan and the Green Knight, um, where it's the same thing. Sir Govan is like this powerful uh, knight. He he can he can do all the things and all that stuff. But then God has to show him exactly how he's not as cool as he thinks. And there's God's order and all that stuff. And the Green Knight is there for that part, right? Okay, so that's the first story that begins the demise, basically, in Gilvekinning. Just quickly, um, 
for anybody that's listening and doesn't know the story of Udgata Loki, I think we probably will do an episode on it at some point. It is a very interesting read. Um, you learn a lot of things. It's it's good fun to to listen to. Just in case anybody didn't get what you were you know what you were referring to, then then they can go and have a have a look. But like I said, we probably will come back and discuss that that story as a as an episode at some point. Absolutely, and also you can always Google something like Thor's journey to Giant Land, and and it will definitely come up somewhere on Google. Um, yeah, so 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 that's. The, that's the story that that begins the downfall of the Aesir, basically in 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 Gilvakinning. The next story is the fishing for the Midgard uh, serpent, where uh, Snorri has a very uh, so the Midgard serpent story is actually the the one of the most prolific stories that we have in um, from the Viking Age and onwards. Like we have it in in pictures, uh, picture stones um, from Sweden, from uh, Denmark, from. Um, even from England, right? The Gosforth Cross has a depiction of Thor fishing for the Midgard Serpent on it. So it's a very popular story. And uh, there's an interesting little detail that Snurri brings in when he's like narrating the story in, in his uh, Edda. He says um, at the point where uh, Hemia um, has cut the line and the serpent has fallen to the bottom of the ocean, uh, he says Thor uh, threw his hammer at it, and then he goes. And some say that he killed the serpent, but others uh, say that he didn't. And I still believe that it's out there. And that's a, an important component, right? Because it's supposed to show up in Ragnarok. He's supposed to battle it in Ragnarok. Next level is the story about Baldur dying. That's the next story that comes after all of this. And that's, of course, the major tragedy because it's the most important of the gods, according to Snorri Sturluson. Only according to Snorri Sturluson, by the way. <laughs> mm. um, and then comes Ragnarok. And so so Snorri is sort of like building up towards uh, the end, the demise of the gods here in, in, in his uh, story. And that tells you a little bit about the function of, of the story. The literature that we have available uh, that is talking about Ragnarok represents Ragnarok as a Christian uh, narrative about the demise of the gods. That's very important to keep in mind with, because that means that we cannot be entirely sure that this uh, story had a role or a particularly important role in pre-Christian times when people hadn't converted to Christianity yet. We know that it becomes incredibly important after and during the time period where people are converting to Christianity in Scandinavia. Um, was it in existence before then? Probably. At least parts of it. Um, there are different theories on the origin of this story. There's uh, John McKinnell, a... Uh, um, English scholar has uh, suggested that it's a it's syncretism. So it's basically a mix of Christianity and paganism. And he has uh, pinpointed exactly where could a, a non-Christian Viking come into contact with the stories about the apocalypse that we know them from uh, St. John's Gospel and so on. Because there is influence from St. John's Gospel on Ragnarok. And he suggested that this could be during that part of the Easter sermon 
where they allow non-Christians into the church to hear about hellfire and brimstone and all that stuff. <laughs> Let you know about all the places you're going to go if you don't convert to Christianity. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that they let non-Christians in for that part. Right? It's almost as if there was a purpose to that. <laughs> yeah. So it's possible, basically, that, 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 that you know, those components that um, are in this poem that look so very similar to St. John's Gospel, they come from somebody's experience at a church uh, sometime in the 900s or something like that. Now, there are also other important aspects of this poem that seem to be more of like collective experiences that people have had in Scandinavia. And um, the primary one that is, uh, and this has been suggested by uh, the Swedish archaeologist Bo Greslund and um, the Anglo-Swedish uh, archaeologist Neil Price. I mean, he's he's British, but he has been working out of Uppsala in Sweden for ages now. Um, they suggested that a, a a component of the story about Ragnarök actually has to do with this major uh, natural disaster that happened in 536, 535 to 536, in that year. We don't know exactly what happened. It's referred to as the Dust Veil event, but it's recorded in classical literature in in uh, in Southern Europe, um, there are records record records uh, basically mention the the sky turned like eerily blue or or it's like you know sort of like pale and was pale for a year or more. Um, crops failed. Um, basically, uh, uh, famine, illness, plagues, and so on happened um, all over. Um, at least the records that we have available to us from Europe and uh, plenty of other places in, in Asia. Just before we jump too far down that rabbit hole, because that's something that, that you've mentioned to me before and I really want to kind of get into that. I just wanted to pull it back just for people who aren't too familiar with what Ragnarok actually is, the, the, the physical events of, you know, what the literature says of this is what happens and this is why it happens. Um, just, just so people, because I'm always cautious that people don't necessarily have as much understanding as, certainly not as you do, but maybe not you know as much as I do. And you know, just make it a little bit clearer around the events of exactly what happens. Yeah, sorry about that. I kind of assumed that at this point everybody has seen the the Marvel Thor Ragnarok movie. <laughs> no, I mean I, I'm always going on the on the assumption now that every podcast we make is probably going to be somebody's first podcast they've heard of yeah. us. So just to try and just try and keep it all nice and tidy, I guess, and put it in these little boxes. I mean, and plus, there's probably stuff that I think I know that I that I sure I found out by doing this many times that I don't actually know and I know them wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's why this is such a great combination, you know. That, uh, as soon as I go down a rabbit hole, you could like, pick me up again and be like, hey, let's just... <laughs> that's it. I mean, we will, I mean, we will get there. That's, that is definitely the most exciting part of this episode for me because I that's something I really want to 
to learn more about and understand. I think it's a, a really interesting theory. But I think for for everybody else listening, I think if we at least outline yeah. what Ragnarok is, maybe even touch on the on the death of Balder, so people who have not very much understanding at least then can follow through into yes. that. So the progression of Ragnarok, basically the Nordic apocalypse, is that um, eventually Balder dies. He uh, is uh, shot by an arrow made of the mistletoe, at least according to Snorri Sturluson. And uh, Loki is responsible for this, basically guiding the hand of Balder's brother, uh, Hölder. And um, when the gods find, the, uh, find out, they uh, catch and torture Loki, um, chain him underground in a cave with a poisonous snake you know, dripping venom in his face and, and all of these nasty things. I think and then, that's, I, yeah. I, say, I think that's actually portrayed on the show Vikings with with Floki when he kills Athelstan. It they, is. They, they've they've taken that and and used it and I think it's Hilda uses the the little ball. Yep, that is uh, exactly what happens. I <laughs> know. <laughs> I mean, and on that point, I, you can probably tell me whether this is correct, but this is something that I've read is that when the when the ball's full and and um, I guess Loki's wife has to pour the acid out. And in those moments where the acid drips, the Loki screams out in, in sort of in pain, and that that is where earthquakes come from. Now, is that is that a real thing, or have I just heard that somewhere? <laughs> that is a real thing, and I can show you exactly where it comes from. So, actually, you know, this one is uh, it's it's mentioned twice. We have it from Snorri Sturluson, who says. That is the that is the cause of earthquake, and then we also have it in in the poem Loka Senna, um, which is a late poem, and it is not the in the actual stanzas. It's sort of like a, a an epilogue, um, where so Loka Senna is where Loki gets drunk and he barges into the party where all the gods are sitting, and then he's just insulting everybody, and eventually at the end of the poem. Um, he's kicked out, and uh, Thor is um, uh, like uh, chasing him. And then, then there's like this little epilogue that says that um, that, that Loki escaped to Franangafoss, where he uh, was living like a um, salmon. And uh, then he was bound up with the entrails of his um, his sons and all that stuff. And and it gives like a little description of how he was, you know. Uh, put in that cave with all that venom and dripping in his face and all that stuff. Um, and then it says, En er munlögin var full, uh, bar hon út e- e- eitrið, uh, en meðan dröp í eitrið á loka. Þá kiptið hann svo hart uh, við, at þaðan af skal jörð öll. Það eru nú kattaðir. Landskjálda. Uh, so uh, it says, um, and when um, the the bowl was full, uh, she, uh, that Segan, his wife, had to uh, empty out the um, the poison, and then the poison uh, dripped into uh, Loki's face, and then then he convulsed so much uh, that um, the w- earth um, quaked, um, all. The entire earthquake, 
And that is what we call earthquake. <laughs> I, I always find things like that so interesting where understanding, you know, their explanations for things that we, we obviously know where they come from now, but, but back then, obviously they had no idea. So it's, it's nice learning these different things that, you know, the, the way that they kind of said, you know, the earth shaking, um, it must be Loki. Right. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know any better, then it's as good as expl- it's as good an explanation as anything else. Exactly, no, and um, and this is what we see uh, across the world that this is how people have been thinking about these things. And in uh, in the Mediterranean area, they thought uh, earthquake and such things came from um, you know the eagle of the northern wind, Boreas Aquilo, who would like basically blow winds into the caverns of the uh, the world, and then it would shake. <laughs> you know so yeah that's pretty common um but yeah okay so so that happens we have this situation of Loki um being responsible for the death of Baldur then getting punished and that is really important because um Ragnarok is supposed to start with uh brothers killing brothers that's um uh, that comes right after in the story Munuberjask it says so brothers will fight, and um, siblings will destroy the bonds um, of family and 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 all that stuff. So it's a social apocalypse too, right? That's the thing that sets it off is the breakdown of community and family. Um, lesson to be learned right there, especially in these times. And then absolutely. Right, <laughs> and then after that, we have this uh, um, build up towards um, the time where Loki then breaks out, and he breaks breaks out of the, his bonds in the cave. He comes um, sailing on a ship called Nagelfar, which Snurri interprets as a ship made of the nails of the dead. And whether or not that is actually how Vikings saw it, we can't be entirely sure. Um, we know this, this story about the Nails of the Dead from um, several folktales, too, where you know, the devil collects the Nails of the Dead to make this ship where he can then send all the evil dead people after people or something like that. Is there anything more terrifying than a ship made of fingernails or toenails? It is pretty creepy. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine they had the the greatest hygiene when it came to foot health. I imagine there's some pretty some pretty nasty toenails going on there. <laughs> hey, they, we have found a lot of nail clippers and also a lot of um, you know instruments to clean your nails in, from Viking Age Scandinavia. So actually, they they could have been pretty <laughs> <laughs> pretty hygienic. <laughs> it makes it a little bit nicer than I guess. But still, you just don't want to see a ship made of you know, yellow toenailish. No, uh, no, no, ah. <laughs> no. I mean, it must just be a logistical nightmare to make a ship out of that too. I can't even think about where you'd even start. But that's another thing, right? I mean, consider that. Consider the ridiculousness of that, right? The idea that somebody is sitting somewhere deep down below Earth making a ship out of tiny little fingernails, right? Um, there's got to be some humor to that, 
that these guys that were composing this stuff and making up these stories back then, that they were like, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds funny. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has to be, or unless, you know, the Norse were just incredibly terrified of fingernails. <laughs> that could also be a thing, like a phobia. <laughs> yeah, it's just something that's died out that we don't know about, and they just really hated toenails. I mean, if if anything, Snorri Sturluson uses this as a, a way to lecture uh, the younger generation, he says, that is why you need to cut your fingernails. So, <laughs> I mean, these had these stories had practical applications. <laughs> so it could just be like an old wives' tale where, you know, where my mom told me if I didn't eat my crusts, then my hair was going to go curly, or if I ate carrots, I could see in the dark. And, mom, you lied yeah. to me, man, I can't see in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I am my carus. Where's my where's my night vision? <laughs> yeah, no, it, and it says a lot, right? Like, parents will tell you a lot of things to to make you eat your carrots, right? Yeah, they just lie to kids. I mean, <laughs> they <laughs> there's a lot of parents that just lie to children to make them do what they want, and then it's like, oh yeah, exactly. it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, no, I guess the Viking Age version of that is like um, you have to cut your fingernails, otherwise. Demons are going to come from the underworld and, and destroy us. <laughs> there you go. That's that. I think we've solved it. I think we have. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. After demons come from the underworld and a ship made of fingernails, uh, Loki is steering it and he brings with him all of these sons of Muspek, is what they're called, or the people of Muspek. And Muspek is an interesting word. It means some kind of fiery hell. Um, we can identify it first time in um, the old, old High German poem Muspili. The poem has the name, the same name. And it looks like that word actually meant the Christian apocalypse back in the ninth uh, century um, when this poem was composed. Because it's all about um, Elijah fighting satan and in this conflict conflagration um and fiery uh destruction of the world so that somehow that that word came to scandinavia and was became part of the Ragnarok story right again one of these christian elements what the most important thing about this is that it is a non-christian interpretation of it the word is uh, like the muspels lidius the people of of muspet they um that it has nothing to do with Christianity as such in in the Nordic context. Anyway, so so um they they come and um and that's when uh they attack the gods, right? They, they they approach from from the periphery of the world, converge upon the um the world of the gods, the Aesir, and Thor fights the Midgard serpent. Odin fights the Fenris wolf, um, and um, Freyr fights Surtur, and Surtur is a fire giant, right, who comes from from the underground with a flaming sword that tears down the sun and and all of that stuff, and then they they die. <laughs> Good night. That's it. Well, yeah, okay. and then afterwards, uh, there's of course like a rebirth. Just to go back quickly to to kind of the battles and and so I've kind of always understood it as as high 
Heimdall would fight Loki. Is that a real thing, or is that something that somebody's put together after the fact? Um, and there's no mention of of a Heimdall uh, fighting Loki in in the Verlusbau poem. I mean that that could just be something that you know I've read along the way, and it's just somebody's extension of what's already there, and and assuming that these people fight each other. And a, a tying up of characters, I guess. I'm sure you probably would have heard of it before if that was the case. Well, I have heard of it before, but um, but I can't, I can't um, really identify a place in the poem that where there's anything that sort of like um, suggests that. I I presume this is probably one of those instances where. This character's kind of left over, and at some point somebody's gone, oh, well, these two can fight each other, and and just kind of, I guess, t- trying to tie up loose ends almost. Yeah, I, I can't remember if maybe, it's not improbable that, uh, um, that Snurri mentions it, because, um, I mean, he does make stuff up, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, if nothing else, I mean, he, I, I think the I. The idea that uh, Loki and Heimdallr um, are fighting um, is actually it comes from a later story where uh, they fight over Brisingamen, Freya's um, um, uh, necklace. Okay, I guess I guess that's maybe why people would assume that they would then fight maybe at Ragnarok because they kind of already have that bad blood. There, so it would make sense for for them to go for each other. Sometimes I forget stuff too, you know. Oh, Loki will have a battle with Heimdallr, and th- yeah, it says so in 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 Snorri's version. Oh, there we go. Yeah, he's he does he does mention it. Blip. So whether whether that's true or not, we we obviously don't know. Because like you say, Snorri can be known for making things up. Yeah, I I, I don't remember that I, that I see it in any of the poetry. Um, and that's that's important uh, part of understanding Ragnarok, right? And and all of Nordic mythology is that we have this poetry and a lot uh, like the the, the Eric poems, Verlusbau and and Halvamal and and all of these uh, poems, and then we have Skaldic poetry, and that stuff can be so incredibly hard to understand. Um, there are words in there that you know. A guy like Snorri Sturluson back in the 13th century wouldn't be able to understand um, because they have gone out of uh, out of use. Um, there are words that we can't understand because we we it they, these words only appear in this particular poem and nowhere else, right? Uh, so we have to guess a little bit. Sometimes it's, it's not it's not difficult, but um, I mean it's not difficult for 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 you know scholars who are working with the language and linguists you know but but it is if nothing else it, it it is something that makes makes some of the translations a little uncertain aside from that there's a context um and Snorri is the only one who provides a context for for all of this he takes the poetry interprets it and writes a little book about it nice little prose narrative about all this stuff and it's obviously interpretation which makes it a little difficult for us nowadays to actually be like, well, what did these Vikings actually believe in? Um, so, so that's something to keep in mind. 
one one thing is that Snorri could be inventing stuff. Another thing is that Snorri could also be basically taking aspects of stories that he knew orally from his cultural tradition in Iceland and, and putting that in there as well. We see that happening in some cases where we can identify for sure that this is something Snorri knows from somewhere else and we just can't really pinpoint the source. So there's like a, so many different layers in this as well. And that's something to keep in mind. I imagine it's uh, it's a nightmare to try and navigate through and find out what's what's true and what's not. I mean, obviously he's got his his own Christian sort of beliefs mixed in there as well. So he's trying to portray it in a certain light, and it must be it must be di- a difficult task. It's fun, man. That's why I got into this in the first place. So it's sort of like uh, you know, is it playing detective with the uh, ancient texts? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a big treasure hunt. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to the apocalypse, man. Yeah, quickly before, again, on on the fighting side of things, um, obviously you have Odin who will go do battle with Fenrir the Wolf. Now, the ones I've read before would have Tyr battle um, the Hellhound Garm. Now, I've also read sort of ideas that, that Garm and Fenrir would be the same beast Mm-hmm. So obviously Tyr lost his arm to to Fenrir. Fenrir is the one who bit his arm off. So it would make sense that Tyr would want revenge on Fenrir by slaying him at Ragnarok. So is it is it possible that those two are the same wolf, or is it for certain that they are two different beasts? Is there any closure around that? Okay, this is where it gets really tricky. <laughs> that Fenris wolf thing is really vague <laughs> in 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 the the original poetry <laughs> that's that's the problem here um snurri makes a big deal out of the fenris wolf but uh if we go to the original poetry it's a little tricky uh so let me just uh let me just give you the um the text where uh, we have something about wolves. So, stanza 40 in Verlusbau, and it goes in, in, in English translation. East sat an old crone in iron wood and suckled there the seed of Fenrir. From them all, all shall emerge a certain one, a grabber of the moon in monstrous guise. Um, that's the translation of um, the Old Norse version. Öster sat in altna jarnvidi og feitida fenris kindir. Verder af dem ötlum enna nokkor tungels tjugari idrols hami. So, what this is actually saying is that um, East in this iron uh, forest, um, this old one is feeding Fenris um, family, and then one of them is going to steal the moon in the guise of a troll or in in the body shroud of a troll. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty insane. 
It, it, you know, it, it, these are, this is like, it's awesome stuff. It's very metal. But the problem is here that we're not, we're not 100% sure that we're talking about a wolf. Okay. <laughs> I mean, because everything you see is, um, that obviously Fenrir will come her Ragnarok and I guess swallow the, the sun and the moon and, and he's going to, you know, he's the big, he's the big bad enemy. Yeah. And wolves do play a part, but when we have Fenrir identified right here, at least, we're not, we can't be entirely sure that we're talking about a wolf. The section about where, where the wolf shows up, um, and, you know, our good friend Odin is, is fighting it and all that stuff is, is from 53 and onwards. So what it says here is that then there comes for Hleen a second sorrow when Odin goes to fight the wolf and Bailey's bright bane against Surter. Thence when Frigg's beloved must fall. And then it goes on, the earth's girdle gapes over heaven, the dread serpent's jaws yawn on high. Odin's son must meet the serpent when the wolf is dead, and we thus kin. Then there comes the famous offspring of Lothin. Odin's son goes to fight the serpent, the defender of Middle-earth, strikes in his wrath. All warriors must abandon their homesteads. He goes nine paces, the son of Fjörgen spent, from the snake that fears no spite. And then the sun turns black and land sinks into the sea, and that's when the, everything ends. But the way that this sounds in, in, in the poem is a lot more iffy. <laughs> so Odin, yes, he will fight a wolf. It says, Thou kermer hlinar harmar annar fram er Odin fjell with ulf vea. So Odin is going to fight the wolf. Um, but it's it's just that the part where, where um, our good friend Thor here is going to fight the Midgar Serpent is actually not, it's not that clear that it's the Midgar Serpent. This is, this is something that we, we can infer by interpretation based on Snorri's version of Ragnarok. And the important thing to understand here is that the wolf as such is an image of war. It's an image of, um, a, you know, a, a calamity. So, so the wolf symbolizes chaos. And you must ask yourself then, uh, how, how concrete should this Fenris wolf be understood? And, and, and as I said, uh, we're not really seeing Fenrir here. We're seeing, uh, Fenris Kindir. So his, um, his offspring. And otherwise it's just the wolf that is mentioned. And then we have Garmer, as you mentioned, and he is interesting because he is sort of the responsible for telling us that now Ragnarok will come. Gernu Garmer mjök fyrri gnipa hetli. Festa mun slitna in freki renna. Fjöld veit hon freida fram sjeik lengra um Ragnarok röm sigtiva. That is a really awesome um, stanza because it says Garm now howls loud before looming cave. The bond will break and the ravenous one run. 
Much law she knows, I see further ahead of the power's fate, implacable of the victory gods. Dun, 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 right? So, um, he's, uh, this, this Garma, wolf or dog or whatever it is, is standing before Gnipa Hitler, which might be a, the entrance to hell or something like that, and then barks and then runs off. And, and that's really, how that works out. So the, what we're seeing in these uh, stories is a lot of like talk about wolves and dogs being like these beasts that are going to, well, you know, be responsible for your demise to some extent, at least if you're a god. Um, either it's your hand that they take <laughs> or <laughs> they swallow you whole, you know. <laughs> uh, my point is simply just that um, we should be careful in, in, in trusting exactly that, 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 um, that Snorri Sturdeson's interpretation of all of this is true. That he actually knew what he was talking about. <laughs> he, he did a good job. He did a good job in trying to lay this out for us. But we can't be entirely sure that he actually knew what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be the easiest thing to try and follow. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's let's move on to obviously everyone's gonna die and yeah. then the world is is reborn. Yes. So um and this is this is where I'd like to go back to this uh, natural disaster I was talking about, the so called dust veil event, right? Because we don't know exactly what happened back in five thirty five thirty six. Um we just know that that there was this so called dust veil event that is probably a volcanic eruption. Some scholars have pinpointed it to Ecuador. Uh, so basically a huge eruption in Ecuador um, that emits so much um, um, tephra, um, ash, into the, uh, the sky that it blocks out the sun. And yes, that can happen um, <laughs> on a global scale. And that, that seems to be what, what happened uh, back then. And what we can see in the archaeology of Scandinavia is that in this period, right after this so-called Dust Veil event, between 50 and 70% of, uh, of settlements in uh, central northern Sweden, Norway, uh, disappear. 50 to 70%. That's a lot of people gone. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, look at what we're facing now and... If you compare it to, to, to that kind of scale, then it's what we were, what we're facing is a, a walk in the park, I guess. Yup. <laughs> to be honest, uh, these, the, I mean, scholars have said that 536 was the worst year to be alive in human history. And they might be right. <laughs> I mean, 50, 50 to 70% is, is almost unfathomable to think about, you know, if, that that's that's half or you know three quarters of everybody that that you know that it, it is just is gone. It's you know it's a lot of people, a lot of people you care about, and you can quite easily see why that might be interpreted as the end of the world, right? So we don't know exactly what happens to these people. They might leave because what what happens here, or it's, I, I'm sure some of them leave. I mean, this is also during the period we call the Migration Age, right? Um, and and this disaster could have, you know, spurred migrations 
from uh, Northern Europe and downwards. Um, and that makes sense. Uh, if you are in Scandinavia at the time, your the growth cycle for your um, agricultural products um, is much less than it is in the southern parts of Europe. That's one thing to keep in mind. So when you are hit by a disaster of this kind, that is a massive effect on your uh, your population, right? Um, but you can up and leave. You can go. You can basically just get out of there. We see in um, in the Danish area, we see uh, what indicates a lot of like ritual response to this. Basically, they start sacrificing gold to the gods. Um, so, so there's like a you know religious uh, uh, reaction to it as well, and um, and we're seeing this depopulation. But that's it, really. But we have to consider that what probably happens afterwards is that uh, society is restructured in different ways. And it kind of looks like after the middle of the 500s, that's when we see the Odin cult of, of, of sort of emerging. This idea of the Odin warriors. Odin is like the king. And and he has these warriors, the Berserkir and Ulfhethna, these uh, wolf-like and bear-like warriors. And that's where if if this interpretation is correct, that's where the Viking Age begins. Because what you have then is people banding together around a powerful leader who then says, let's build a ship, let's go invade England. Right? <laughs> uh, so so actually, what might be the case here is that this, this disaster spurs the Viking Age. Slowly, of course, coming along. Because consider this... Um, we're used to thinking about the Viking Age starting in 793 with Lindisfarne, all of that stuff. But there are, there are reports of attacks before then, even back in the 500s. The Danish king Chochilaikus, apparently, was recorded by Gregory of Tours, I think in the 560s, if I'm not mistaken, to have invaded down in France. Now, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty about this Chochilaikus. But there's one thing that is interesting, and that is um, that name is sort of like the French, at the time, Frankish French version of Higelac from Beowulf. That king shows up there. <laughs> and we know know that name from uh, Old Norse as well, Huglaker. So it's not a, it's not completely... Uh, unfathomable that that this this is actually a real historical event that's also somehow reported in, um, you know, this vague poetic literature in different ways, or at least the figure, the, the person who was responsible for this, um, was reported on in other sources. But anyway, what it, this basically looks like is that at you know at this point, what we're seeing is a depopulation in, uh, of the Scandinavian area because it is hard to live there. Right, uh, several winters follow each other, and this is what uh, Bo Kreslon and Neil Price have pointed out that in um, in Verlospal, we do have that. Um, uh, what leads up to Ragnarok is this uh, um, uh, stanza forty-one that says, "Fitlist fjörvi feiramanna ruder ragnasjot röldum dreira." 
Svört verða sólskin of sumur eftir, veður öl valund, vítul er en eða hvat. And that's really interesting because uh, in translation it reads, He is filled with the lifeblood of doomed men, reddens the power's dwellings with ruddy gore. The sunbeams turn black the following summer, all weather woeful. Do you know yet or what? Okay, so this is really interesting because the, the uh, he is filled with the lifeblood of doomed men. That's probably Fenrir, if he is actually that wolf. Or if he's just like, if the wolf is just a representation of the chaos that, that happens. Um, he reddens the power's dwellings with ruddy gore, uh, splattering the, um, what is the power's dwellings? We're talking about the gods here, splattering, uh, the dwellings of the gods. Where do we assume the gods live? Some, possibly some, somewhere up there in the sky or something like that. So the sky turns red. And um, the sunbeams turn black the following summer. So the sky turns black after that. Red to black. Okay. Sounds a lot like you would do with a, a volcanic eruption. Precisely. And that is, uh, that is how it has been interpreted by, uh, by Borg Reslund and, uh, and Neil Price. Uh, they've even suggested that... Um, so this more southerly reports on this event suggest that it was uh, uh, say that the this guy turns like uh pale bluish pale but um but they uh, uh, Neil Price and uh, uh, and Bogreslin suggested um if it was a uh southern hemispheric eruption like for instance in Ecuador then um it is likely that uh, the sky would have looked reddish up in the Scandinavian realm. So it makes perfect sense in that regard. I guess it's important to remember as well that if that happened now, we would look on the news channels, we would be told on Facebook, Instagram, you know, you turn on your TV and it's there, it explains what's happened and this is what's going to happen after. Whereas for them, they just, they had no idea that this volcano had erupted they only found out about it when the sky started to change colour and then eventually the sun disappeared. So for them, they had to explain it somehow and that would be explaining it through things that they knew in their own mythology and their own beliefs. Absolutely. And you can compare this with reports on the 1783 to uh, 84 uh, Icelandic eruption, La Um just in your own area, where you're sitting right now, in Scotland and in Yorkshire and the, 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 that northern English area, the reports um, in um, uh, in various kinds of literature, newspapers for that matter, are very similar. They're just so interesting. I think it was, maybe it was Thomas Gray who composed a poem about this, about how the the sun looks like this glowing red hot um, salamander, I think he called it as a... Um, so, and people went nuts when it happened. Um, people thought it was the end of the world. The plants and trees and everything in, um, uh, in the Scottish area, they uh, turned gray and, um, there was a massive, uh, sulfur cloud basically that was emitted from, from that eruption in Southeastern Iceland that was sent 
down over Western Europe, and it's estimated about a hundred thousand people died from from that from respiratory illnesses. I mean, I, I can't lie. If the if I looked outside and the and the sun disappeared and the sky was black, the news could be telling me it's perfectly normal. But I'd still be thinking, you know what? We're gonna <laughs> die. It's the end of the world here. So even even knowing better, I still think inside I would be like, oh, shit, we're you know this is the world's gonna end. Yeah, I mean, that's how some people are already thinking about this situation we're in right now, right? Like, <laughs> ranging from, like, we're all going to die to, uh, it's probably just like the flu, <laughs> you know? Oh, I imagine, have you ever seen the, the TV show Extreme Preppers, which is just basically people who, who prep for disasters in a whole manner of different ways? And I can imagine they are rubbing their hands together right now, like, ha, told you oh, so. Yeah. <laughs> they are sat, so I bet some of them as soon as it started happening went down into their little bunker and they're just like hey, no well I told you this was going to happen yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's a, that's, that's that's how it works and, and you know what it's not a bad thing to be a little prepared you know for these kinds of situations have enough food stored for at least 14 days I'd say a month you know absolutely 14 days 14 days is smart but a month is better you know, yeah, it, I think it's definitely a good idea to have some prep. I just think some people take it to the uh, absolute extreme. Yes. Uh, so, and that's the thing, right? So, we, if you want to understand what what went through people's minds back then, uh, in in five thirty six seven eight, you know, after after this catastrophe, and they had experienced what the poem says, basically, at least. At least one season with just winter, you know, the summer was cold and dark and wintry, and maybe even the summer after that one, right? That's two growth cycles that are gone for people, you know, in in northern Sweden or in central Sweden. Uh, so they must have been panicking so much, right? Oh, to relate it back to what we're going through now, I mean, it's only been serious in the UK for. A week, maybe ten days, and the shops are empty. There's, you know, the 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 shelves are empty of the the necessities, you know, flour, bread, milk, rice, pasta, all those things. You know, the staple things are all gone. The toilet paper's all gone, as we know. And I mean, so you know, that's that's ten days into it. So these people are looking at two years, you know, and and they rely on being able to farm to to eat. So they must have been you know, out of their minds, it must have been the end of the world, you know, and they had a choice either stay and die or move try, move away and try and get somewhere else. But I guess even then, you know, your world is so small in those times that you even if you pack up and go, I guess you probably just assume that what's happening to you in your vicinity is probably the same thing that's happening to everybody. So... Yeah some of them may have just thought, you know, well, what's the point in us moving when we're going to exert all this energy and food in, in trying to move and it's probably not going to be any better when we get there. Exactly. And see, this is where the Mad Max scenario of uh, of the Viking Age begins, right? Oh, I'm, waiting for, the, I'm <laughs> waiting for all the tight leather and, uh, and the fishnet, <laughs> fishnet vests. And so, the Thunderdome and everything. That's it. Yeah, I'm waiting for that to start. 
yeah, uh, I, <laughs> you know, it looks like it's going to be a much more boring apocalypse. But, <laughs> but what happened in Scandinavia, it looks like, is basically the people are like, gathering uh, around like these central figures um, in different places, and um, and then we see raiding starting, you know, because your your stocks run out. Your storage is out. So what's what's the next level? Well, let's go see if the neighbor has something to share. Oh, the neighbor doesn't want to share. Well, if there's more of us, and there you go, right? <laughs> and, and and again, to bring it back to what we're going through with a minute, is you only have to look at, at the gun sales in America to show that people are already worrying about that. And like I say, it's only been a couple of weeks, but people are already taking upon themselves to arm themselves in in case it comes to this. So if you imagine if we're still going through this in two years, then it could get quite nasty. It can get quite nasty with these kinds of things. I mean, that's why, see, that's, that's why it's nice to have a government that's responsible, that, you know, ultimately exists for the people and not for itself or, or, you know, for its stocks or <laughs> something like that. A, a government that exists to make sure that people, that the people that exist in the, the, the country that it governs uh, actually, um, you know, can function, right? Because that's how society survives. Otherwise, societies go down. Yeah, and I guess it would quickly just turn back into whoever's the biggest, the strongest is going to rule. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. That's, that, that's not, never a viable option. Um, because ultimately what it means is that you don't have any consistency, you know, consistency only exists for as long as the person in charge, right? Then something new is going to happen when the next one shows up. Um, you have, you have a constant threat of pretenders to the throne. That's what we saw in the Roman empire, right? Um, (laughs) you know, the, the sort of like caricature of, of like a, a, an emperor shows up, and then like three days later, he's poisoned, and then a new one, and then a new one, right? <laughs> so there's always somebody wanting that top seat when he's up for grabs. Exactly, and that's why you need better uh, ways of deciding who's going to be top dog for a while, right? That's why we have democracy. That's what democracy is for. <laughs> the Thunderdome does sound quite fun, though. <laughs> well, yeah, um, but that's, <laughs> that, the, the, that's why we have, you know... MMA fighting on, on and UFC and all that stuff on on TV, right? It's not to pick a leader; it's just for fun. <laughs> yeah, just for entertainment. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely not the best way to to pick your leader. No, and I, I'm just like, just think about it. If if that was the way that we did it, I mean, Mike Tyson could have been president here in the US a couple of times already. I mean, I bet there's a few people that wouldn't mind seeing uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson in a cage together. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like it would be a pretty boring match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure how, who would win or how they would win. Uh, but I'm pretty sure there's a few people that would want to want to watch it. <laughs> Anyway, going back to this, that, that whole scenario of Ragnarok, right? Okay, so so what it looks like is that at least parts of the story were born in that chaos that followed the so-called Dust Veil event. And um, then comes my theory, 
because I've actually written a book about this. <laughs> um, uh, my theory is plain and simple that that another section of this story, and that's this is the section that begins with uh, um, Yggdrasil. Um, so, stanza 47 goes, The standing ash of Yggdrasil shudders, the aged tree groans, and the giant breaks free. All are afraid on the paths of hell, before Surt's kin swallows it up. What's with the Aesir, what's with the elves? All giants' domain groans. The Aesir hold counsel. The dwarfs murmur before their stone doors. Lords of the cliff wall, do you know yet or what? Garm now howls loud before Looming Cave, or Gnipahetlir. And Looming Cave is a weird translation. The bond will break and the ravenous one run. Much lore she knows. I see further ahead of the power's fate, implacable of the victory gods. Hrim drives from the east, holds his shield ahead. Great Wand writhes in giant wrath. The serpent strikes waves, the eagle screams, pale-beaked uh, rips bodies, nail-boat breaks free. A vessel journeys from the east, Muspel's troops will come over the waters, while Loki steers. All the monster's offspring accompany the ravenous one, the brother of Bileister is with them on the trip. And then Surt comes from the south with what uh, with what damages branches. There shines from his sword the son of corpse gods. Rock cliffs clash, trolls crash, warriors tread hell roads, and heaven is rent. And the sad thing about this is that this does not sound half as cool in translation as it does in the original. <laughs> but what this is, is basically a uh, series of stances that have all of these very curious uh, sort of uh, relations to um, earthquakes and convulsions, movements in the ground. Um with the stanza forty seven, right? Iktarsit is shuddering, right? So it's like vibrating, and then we have um, a, a reference to the giant that comes loose. We don't know which giant it is. It sounds like it's Surtur, right? Surtur is a fire giant from the underworld, right? Uh, who's uh, all of a sudden, uh, who's <laughs> him and his kin are swallowing up the road to hell. So that they're basically, what, what we're being told here is that fire fills up the underground. Okay. okay? It sounds a lot, yeah. like, a lot like lava. <laughs> Doesn't it, right? And then we have this curious situation of Garma, who uh, barks in front of Gnipahetlir. Now, Gnipahetlir could also mean the cave on top of a, a peak, right? Okay. Like, like a volcanic caldera. <laughs> it also means that just the entrance to the underworld, which is mm -hmm. still something that is interesting here to, to consider. Um, and and if we go deep into the the, the literature uh, or, or the, the the actual etymology of the, the um, what is happening here in this um, uh, this stanza, 
Um, so the Völva, who is the prophetess here, she says, Fram sie ek längra um Ragna rök, röm sig tiva. She says, I see ahead to Ragnarök, um, the darkness of the victory gods, right? Um, like, she's basically, it sounds like she's saying that, well, the, the, the next thing that's going to happen is that, you know, darkness is going to befall on the gods. Um, and then we have this Hrimer, a, um, a giant of sorts, who comes from Jotunheimer or somewhere over there in the, def- the periphery of everything with a shield in front of him. We have the, um, gi- uh, the, 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 the Jörmungandr, the Midgard serpent, who um, makes, well, the sea, turns the sea to chaos, right? There's an uproar, waves in the sea. And this interesting uh, reference to an eagle that has a, a ash pale beak uh, that starts like ripping in people's uh, bodies. Uh, this a- reference to the ash pale beak sounds very much like uh, something that has to do with like you know the ashes in the sky. There's an interesting little thing about eagles when it comes to volcanic eruptions on a global scale. What we see is a lot of stories about volcanic eruptions, like in North America, in the Caucasian Mountains, um, elsewhere on the planet, where eagles are involved. Like there, it's either like uh, the ash plume is described as an eagle, ash pale eagle, a white eagle, uh, a white eagle with a red eagle underneath it. Um, that's a Modoc story from. Uh, uh, from here in uh, the northeastern parts of the U.S., uh, sorry, north northwestern parts of the U.S., um, and we also find that in in Iceland, there's a reference in uh, in in one of the annals from the, the 1300s where they are reporting on an re- eruption in Hekla that they saw birds and and eagles flying out of it. So there's something about this that uh, humans seem to have had a tendency throughout the ages to describe volcanic eruptions as uh, as something that has to do with eagles. And it's not a wonder because eagles tend to nest in the high uh, reaches of mountaintops. So those are some of the first birds that you'd see leaving a volcano, uh, volcano that is erupting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So do earthquakes come along with volcanic eruptions? Obviously, I know that um, volcanic eruptions happen from the tectonic plates moving and, and obviously the, the lava coming up through. So I assume that you would have an earthquake alongside a volcanic eruption. I'm just thinking for the purpose of the sea obviously being disrupted, that's something that you tend to get with with an earthquake. Yeah. Earthquake swarms are typical uh, as forewarnings of eruptions. And they can happen... Long time in advance, like several months in advance, where you see because magma is moving around, right, and coming up and f- filling up um, um, uh, you know, caverns in the ground and uh, magma chambers, and creating pressure, right, and that um, causes earthquake. So that can happen uh, several uh, um, weeks and months in advance. 
it seems like it's happening right now, actually, in Iceland. That has to be absolutely terrifying. Because, like I say, even with what we know now, the Earth, uh, I've never really experienced a major earthquake. We've had, like, little tiny, tiny, tiny tremors. And that scares me to, you know, I'm like, you know, what the hell's happening? The, the Earth literally moving. So, and I, you know, and I know what that is. So you have to assume that these people who don't understand what an earthquake is and and the earth literally starts to move, the houses move. What must go through their minds in this situation? Yeah, they're looking at all of that stuff and they're like, well, that's got to be demons. <laughs> that's got to be that fire g- demon over there. <laughs> it's definitely not good. No. And that brings us to the other thing because uh, then... Then the, the poem asks, "Quat er med awesome, quat er med alvum? Gnir atler jötunheimer, eisir roa thingi, stinjet verka fyr steindurum, uh, vekbergs visir, vitaler en eða quat. Um, so what is up with the gods and the elves is the first thing that this poem is asking here. After we have seen that Surta and his buddies are like running around in the underworld and things are starting to move and shake, right? Um, the dog Garmer is uh, barking in front of Gnipa head there. There's actually, um, uh, there's also a kenning. So one of these typical, uh, uh, metaphors or whatever you want to call them from, of skaldic poetry that combines Garmer with fire. So, could be a fire dog that that's a sort of like a, a stretch in interpretation but nonetheless um there's all these things happening and then we the poem asks what what are the gods up to here what are what are the elves up to um Jürtenheimer, so the world where the giants live is is like in uproar it's um gnir um is sort of a war cry of sorts but you know, carries connotations of, of everything shaking and moving too. And I see a thingy. So all the, you know, the gods are like gathered at the assembly and they're sitting there and like they're pondering what is going on and they're worried. And then it, it says, Stinja dverga fyr steindurum vegbers visir. So the dwarves are standing in front of the stone doors, howling or moaning. That's 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 really a potent image if you consider it in context of of vol- volcanic eruptions because what happens especially in an Icelandic context is these uh, you know sounds from from uh, um, from from openings in the rocks and the glaciers um, that come with you know these effusive eruptions where you know fire columns are being spit out of the underground right. And the poem then asks, "Do you know? Uh, do, would you like to know more, or what? Right? Or, or do, are you getting my point?" Is <laughs> basically what it's saying. <laughs> and then the next uh, stanza is "Surta fer sunnan me svija levi, skinna sverdi sol valtiva, griot björk gnata en givarata, troda hali helveg en himin klotnar." And it's like this is the it's it is so beautifully composed <laughs> in, in this uh in, in, in Old Norse. So Surta 
comes from the south with the harm of branches or whatever you want to call it, this fire, basically. Um, and the son of the slaughter gods uh, shines off the sword. That's a curious uh, uh, phrasing. But um, so his sword seems to be either made of fire or something like that. Um, or what we might be dealing with here, the slaughter god's son, so the darkened sun um, that has a corona around it, which is a very typical thing that you see uh, once ashes are in the uh, atmosphere. Um, then you have like a, a, a ring around the sun, right? Kriopjörk Gnata. So mountains are crumbling and Givarata. Um, this Givar means witches or, or something like that. They are like roaming around and everybody is walking on the road to hell. So people are dying and the sky is ripped apart. <laughs> right. Sounds terrifying. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. That and sounds absolutely <laughs> terrifying. And that sounds like a massive volcanic eruption. And do you know what? From 936 to 940, just about that time where everybody had gotten settled in Iceland, you know, nice and easy after the migrations from Scandinavia and the British Isles, there was an eruption like that. There we go. Eldgjau. <laughs> Eldgjau was a chasm eruption where uh, uh, you basically had this, I think it was 30 kilometers, maybe 35 kilometer long um, opening in the ground where fire columns... Uh, sort of like, you know, ranging into like a, a, a mile into the sky. Mm-hmm. Fire columns, a mile high fire yeah. column. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> getting burst out of like, bursting out of the ground. <laughs> um, uh, darkening, of course, with the ashes of the sky. This eruption went hemisphere- hemispheric and caused famine in China. Okay. I, I think that's probably something they would write about and remember and tell stories about maybe just maybe the funny the the curious thing about all of this is that we actually don't have any good records of it mentioning it um in like icelandic historical writing what we have is ari frodi who says in landnamabok uh oh sorry in Icelandic that people stopped coming to iceland in 930 well wonder why <laughs> just around that time the, the, the ground explodes that makes a lot of sense and aside from that we have one story in Landnamabok this guy named Molta Knupper who lived in the area where most of the lava came down um, we know that the lava came down in that area and he said that he had to move because of you know lava <laughs> but that's it just a bit of lava just a bit of lava <laughs> I mean for for the last two weeks, every conversation I've had with every single person has been about Corona in some way and what's happening in the world. So if I saw lava coming out of the earth a mile high and the ground was shaking, I'm going to tell everyone about that. And I'm not going to stop telling people about that because that's a pretty major deal. Yeah. Now, the thing is, of course, 
you know, these are like symbolic images of different kinds, right? And anybody who's, you know, a scholar of this is right to ask, well, why would they talk about it in, in these terms? Why wouldn't they just describe it directly? But I can tell you why. Um, humans don't do that. <laughs> As humans, we don't tend to just like say, oh, lava is coming up over there. There's, uh, uh, you know, there's a volcanic eruption. That's not really how it works for us. No, especially when they don't understand what a volcanic eruption is. Exactly. It's not, it's not, they, they, I would assume that they just don't have the words to explain what a volcanic eruption to To them, it's, holy shit, there's lava coming off, fire coming out of the ground. Yeah. So you explain it with the vocabulary in the best way you can. Exactly. And, you know, if you think about the vocabulary that we use, the scientific vocabulary that we use, it's the same. Lava seems to be a word that comes from a Italian dialect word, a word for washing, right? So already there, we're using a word that has to do with like you know water uh, about you know fire. <laughs> that and it makes sense because conceptually, it's really hard for us to like wrap our brain around flo uh, floating fire. <laughs> um, and it's the same with magma. Magma means ointment in uh, in in Greek. Yeah, I assume that when it first happened, the people who, who you know, with the direct viewers of it and, and there to experience it, they would have been very literal about their translations of it. It would have been, you know, this fire coming out of the ground. But then once you become, you know, a couple of generations removed, these, I guess these stories get told around around the campfire. Then you start putting that sort of poetic spin and that kind of, you know, you start making it a little bit, a little bit storytelling. You know, you 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 telling it for for what it is, and you people add the the, the spin to it and, and make it sound a little bit nicer. Yeah, and that's what we in in, in scholarship called the called the oral pipeline. The oral pipeline functions with the compression, for instance. You in you in order to retain um, knowledge, right? Uh, over time, you compress. Uh, information to the to the very core the most important part of it right um you you also have uh, different aspects uh, like um, um a story will you know if it's popular and important it it will it'll act as a magnet for other components and other stories right so that's that's how you also get like these things like combined in different ways ultimately what it kind of looks like here and that's also something that you can consider in context of the current situation we're in. Everybody's talking about the Spanish flu all of a sudden, right? Mm -hmm. The last the last epidemic or pandemic that we remember. Um, that's also something that happens, right? When you experience these uh, calamities and all that stuff, um, you remember the, the ones that, it, that happened before then, right? All of a sudden, my Facebook feed is full of... Um, because I follow a lot of like medieval pages and that kind of stuff, right? It's full of stuff about the plague and what can we learn from the plague and all of these things. Um, and that's, that makes sense, right? So what, what is the, you know, plenty of my colleagues would say, say to me about all of this is that, well, how can you be sure that we're talking about volcanic eruptions? The same thing with, um, with that bit that has to do with the so-called dust veil event. They would say to Neil Price and, and Bo Beslan, well, how can you be sure that it has to do with that? And we can't, of course. 
Uh, but there's a lot of things we can't be sure about when it comes to this poem. But um, it is interesting to see, if nothing else, that it is... like So this poem, I think, was composed in Iceland. I think it's from the, uh, the late 900s in Iceland. And it definitely rides on, you know, the cultural memory of um, that Dust Veil event that happened in, fi- uh, in the 530s. And um, sort of like compiles a lot of basically a lot of trauma that people had experienced in Northern Europe from the 530s and into the late 900s when the Elkiao eruption happened. People uh, people are reminded again, right? Like said, we're a bunch of Scandinavians. We just like migrated from mainland to Iceland, and all of a sudden Iceland is on fire. <laughs> and exploding. Um, well, what's a point of reference? Well, a point of reference is what happened back uh, some centuries ago. And uh, remember King This and That, who was in charge back then. Um, he did this and that and so on, right? And of course, you know, that king is legendary. Maybe he never existed or anything like that. But that's how this works, right? That's how we think about things. We, t- we tie them to important figures. And... Then uh, some some kind of sense is made out of uh, all of it, and so uh, yeah, it's very possible that this poem is actually like a compilation of these like levels of of like experiences of quote unquote apocalypse. Yeah, I I think you said it perfectly. I think that's a a good place for us to wrap this up. I I personally agree with with you. Agree with your theories. I think it makes perfect sense. I think that unfortunately scholars can sometimes kind of get stuck in their stuck in their way with things they you know an idea comes about and it's very difficult to change some people's minds that maybe it was something else and it's an unfortunate side of scholarship i think that people sometimes refuse to refuse to change their opinions and they want to discredit other people before with you know without kind of looking at it almost you see i guess you see a lot of it with with egypt and um, it happens all the time there's people who have some really sort of groundbreaking ideas and it's just pushed to the side because it's not the 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 normal thing or it's not what people have believed for so long yeah no it's that's how scholarship works unfortunately just like anything else you know you, you adhere to a tradition i say it's, it's, it's disappointing because it shouldn't work like that it should be you know as we develop new ideas and and see, learn new things then Oh, my opinion is certainly as a scholar, you should be willing to, if new evidence comes alight, then you have to be willing to accept that and go, okay, well, this is what we knew up to this point, And that's what we were teaching back then. But now we have to go from this new evidence and move forward and always be on the cusp. Whereas unfortunately with some, they kind of get stuck in their groove and, and want to just stick with what they know and, and kind of oh, just forget everything that comes along. Yeah, no, I mean that's 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 human nature, though. But yeah, you're right. Scholars uh, should be um, perhaps a little different in in their approach to these things, uh, because if nothing else, we are, in principle at least, trained to think different about the, our existence. Like, <laughs> but I I guess that you know everybody has their faults. <laughs> we can't necessarily expect that from it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, if you've been teaching a subject for 30 years, 
and then somebody comes along with this new idea that discredits everything you've done for the last 30 years, I can completely understand why you would dig your heels in and and, and kind of say, no, 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 it can't be, it can't be right. Because it's, it's, it takes a very strong person to, 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 you know, to do something for such a long time and then go, you know what, maybe everything I've been teaching for the last 30 years has been wrong. Well, see, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, this this poem, of course, like, yeah, it, it, it might have these stories about volcanoes in them, right, or other calamities. But but we have to also consider that uh, the primary reason that it exists, right, is not because, um, you know, somebody remembered a volcanic eruption. It's, it's because uh, it wants to tell us something about um, social life, right? morality and and such things that's that's definitely why it's there right so so that's that's also some, something to keep in mind that you know poems like these any kind of literature pretty much you know can exist so to speak in terms of like meaning on so many different levels at the same time and one just because one is right doesn't mean that the other one is wrong right that's also important to keep in mind um absolutely i did promise a silver lining here Okay. Remember, I said in the beginning of all of this, <laughs> after you you had to pull me back from multiple tangents where I was going into outer space. Um, I say you give us a silver lining, and then we we wrap it up on that. We leave it on a on a good note. Yeah, right. The silver lining is that the poem Verlusbau about Ragnarok ends with the world coming back and being a better place. That is something that we have to keep in mind here. That is what all these apocalypses always end with, a better world afterwards. That is also something we know scientifically about, uh, you know, plagues. You know, we have to go through a lot of hardships. We have to go through situations of, like, well, you know, people dying. Uh, but also, it's like scapegoating, where, you know, different peoples are being made responsible for for something that nobody ever had any uh responsibility for basically um but ultimately what we can see historically is that societies end up becoming better societies after these things have happened so that's the silver lining here consider that that we might get a better society out of this especially if we do what these people did right these uh, people who compose these poems if it's true that in this poem, there's both the memory of uh, the 536 event and the Elkiao event from the 930s, right? It means that somebody basically used their cultural memory and capacity to remember history and say, what did we learn from last time this happened? And what can we learn from this time? Where did we go wrong in the process? And what can we fix? And that's how society gets better. So that's your silver lining right there. There we go. That's a, that's a good end, man. Let let's just drift off on that. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> I want to thank everybody for uh, sticking it out with us. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I think it's the longest episode so far. We're coming up to just shy of two hours. I think. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, it's been it's been a good one. We've learned a lot. Hopefully, people and people have enjoyed it as always. Yeah, I hope uh, everybody's enjoyed it, and I hope uh, people, uh, if nothing else, feel a little better in 
I mean, we have a lot of time to spend at home these days, so I think it's, it fits that we spend almost two hours on this episode. <laughs> thank you so much for staying with us. <laughs> thank, yeah, thank you very much, and uh, just take care of each other, look after each other, and we can. I'm sure we can all get through it together. Yeah. All right, man. See you later. Bye. Mm-hmm.